Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 42, The Space Launch System, part two. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So in this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking about the most powerful rocket since the Saturn V moon rocket, NASA's Space Launch System. We've got two guests from the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, here with us today to tell us about the rocket, the payloads it can carry, and where it will go. Spoiler alert, it will bring people, big stuff, and little stuff all farther than we've ever gone before. See, I did it again. You had a second chance for part two and you blew it, Gary. If you're slightly confused, it's because this is part two of our two-part episode on NASA's Space Launch System. There's still some good stuff in here, but if you want the full story, just go back and listen to part one. So continuing our conversation with us today are David Smith and Paul Bookout. David is the Vice President for Advanced Programs at Victory Solutions in Huntsville, Alabama. He has a long career in aerospace engineering and is a subject matter expert on rocket architecture and how payloads will fit into the rocket. He wrote the SLS Mission Planner's Guide, which gives payload developers a general idea of the capabilities of the rocket and some technical specifications so they can determine how their payloads might fit inside. He looks after the big payloads. Our other guest today is Dr. Paul Bookout, EM1 Secondary Payloads Integration Manager, who manages the integration of five CubeSats in the giant rocket, as well as the avionics that will control the deployment of all 13 small satellite payloads on the first mission of SLS and Orion called Exploration Mission 1, EM1. He spends his time managing the little payloads, not much bigger than a shoebox, on a skyscraper-sized rocket. So we're going to talk about just how powerful this monster rocket is, its unique capabilities, what it will be used for, where it is in its development, its first mission with the Orion crew vehicle, and then look ahead to the future, to the moon, and to Mars, and throughout the solar system. In this particular episode, we talk a lot about propulsion on this rocket, especially comparing solid and liquid fuel for the rockets. So at a very high level, the key differences are cost and control. Solid rocket fuel systems are generally simpler in design, cost-effective, and they produce a large amount of thrust, but once the fuel is ignited, you can't really turn it off. Liquid fuel systems provide more flexibility. You can regulate the thrust through system throttle settings, but liquid fuel systems can be more costly. Very smart engineers have assessed the best way to use these two fuels, and for the SLS, they've come up with a combined design of solid and liquid fuel systems. Solid fuel boosters and liquid fueled, the main engines to work in tandem to get you off the ground and moving fast, and then liquid fuel carries, or the liquid fuel engines will carry you where you need to go. So we're go for launch with Mr. David Smith and Dr. Paul Bookout for the Space Launch System Program, T-5, 4, 3, Two, one, zero, and lift off of episode 42 of Houston. We have a podcast. Boom. Nailed it. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light shirt for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Okay, Paul and David, thanks for sticking around. This is going to be part two. We're sort of continuing our conversation, and we were talking a little bit during this, I guess, intermission, but one of the main things that we forgot to touch on was uh, it takes eight minutes to do the first part of this launch. That's the solid rocket boosters and the core stage. Ignition Um, to disposal of those stages. Yes, yeah, but I guess up to this point, 
all you need is some sort of injection burn, and you can pretty much go anywhere in the solar system. Is that right? That's right. So it just depends. You just define what kind of an injection burn, and you can go anywhere. Well, it's, it's the injection burn and then the characteristic energy, which is the, uh, the acceleration to get to that location. You know, it's a curve. So yeah. if you go farther out, the less mass you can bring with that injection burn. So, so it is, it's the timing of the injection burn and the trajectory, but also the farther away you go in the solar system, obviously, the less mass you can carry. So that's all kind of combined together. That's right. And so, so for EM1, the injection burn is going to be translunar, right? Correct. But you can also do... Uh, Mars injection burn or Jupiter injection burn or like anything a after this eight minutes it's just you can just define it that's right so that's yep. really the main thing about this this vehicle is after eight minutes you're ready to go wherever you want and the fact that it's human rated and the fact that you can bring really large payloads right as I guess that we'll start off with that so so we're, we're building this rocket to pretty much go anywhere but what are the sorts of missions we're looking at for the future for SLS? Yeah, the, f the first uh, missions that are being considered are uh, translunar and perhaps making something that has a kind of a compli complicated acronym, LOPG, Lunar Orbiting Platform slash Gateway. What it really is is like a <clears throat> service plaza on a toll road. So think of Saturn V as the rocket that went out and surveyed everything and, you know, there were no roads and it kind of established these, you know, these paths to go to the moon. Okay, now... Uh, SLS is going to take that survey information and, and hopefully make this lunar orbiting platform into a service plaza where, what, you, what do you get there? Well, you get a safe place for the crew. You can refuel landers that can go to the moon. You can have a navigational way station. You have a communication way station. You have a place for internationals to come by and make sure they got everything together before they go to the moon. This gateway, in fact, gives you universal total access to any spot on the lunar surface. Apollo is just equatorial. This station will give you access to any place on the moon. So it has a lot of really great attributes, but it's a different kind of thing. Unlike the space station, which is purely science, this, this lunar orbiting platform is probably going to be a lot more utilitarian and hmm. allow a lot more um, understanding and exploitation of the moon and the lunar surface, which is, in fact, what we need that experience so that we can actually do the same thing for Mars. So it's three days away versus nine months away with Mars. So that, that, that's our first stage. It seems in the 2020s, we're going to be putting that together one piece at a time. So the first piece might be an EM2 mission that <clears throat> delivers a solar electric um, propulsion system that essentially is the way that this station keeps in its place. So with just a little bit of impulse in this, uh, this halo orbit around the moon, you can stay there with very little power using the xenon solar electric propulsion system. The second part might be a habitation module. Uh, this isn't where the crew are going to, they're not going to live here full time. Again, it's a way station. So it's a place they can hang out, refresh themselves, get food, change clothing, who knows, uh, on their way to the moon. Then they're going to have an airlock that allows them to do servicing on perhaps landers and other kind of equipment that comes into that uh, gateway. And then also a place for logistics modules to come to resupply this service plaza so that for the long term it can service people going to and from the moon. So that's probably the first part, and that, that looks like that would be something to be done in the early 2020s, and that's where the current administration seems to be focusing us, is on doing lunar first to be mm -hmm. prepared for Mars later. Okay. It's, uh, it's kind of like a small truck stop. It is. In, Think of it as, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it should be kind of looked at that way as it's a way station to greater and better things, either the moon or Mars. Yeah. 
That's right. You can shower. You can <laughs> you can service it. Get your it's eggs got a, and steak. Yeah. You know, get your car repaired, refuel, get some gas. Tow truck is even there to maybe save you if you have a problem in the moon. So really, it's a good deal. It's kind of like a lighthouse and service plaza all put into one. But not only will the SLS get us there, it's actually going to get the LOP G there, right? It'll it, actually it'll assemble it. It'll assemble it. Yeah. Now, if we were to do it the best way, instead of doing it in smaller pieces, and by the way, it's going to do this just using the trunk section underneath the Orion. So the co-manifested payload is what these little elements of the station are going to be. <clears throat> if we were, uh, if we could, it'd be best to just make one giant chunk and put it in the uh, into a fairing. But the way I think the program is unfolding to use crew to start with is to bring the station in pieces that the crew can assemble at that location. So going back to uh, the previous episode, episode 41, if you haven't listened to it, go back. And that, that was the first part of our conversation. But going back to this co-manifested payload, we're talking about primary payloads, co-manifested, secondary. What's, what's the co-manifested? Yeah, the co-manifested, again, is the 10-ton uh, the, the capability that is the trunk space underneath Orion that's going to fly in the Block 1B SLS. So um, in contrast, if you took off the Orion and this trunk space and put a large fairing on top, you get a primary payload that could be 40 tons of the moon. Ooh. So it's 10 tons of the moon as a co-manifested, or it's maybe 40 tons of the moon as a primary payload. And the secondary payloads are, are payloads of opportunity that kind of fit in little tiny spaces that are left over that aren't filled up with other kinds of stuff. And that's where Paul comes in, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's my world. That's right. So a after Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway, one of the early missions that it's been envisioned um, is taking a probe to the Europa, the moon, um, icy moon of Jupiter. What's so neat about this mission is that SLS is going to be able to loft this payload uh, and get it to Jupiter in two and a half years, where a, a current ELV, Atlas, Delta, even a Falcon 9 Heavy, couldn't do that in more than seven years. So we're going to cut five years off a trip. Now, what does that mean? Well, one, it means that you're, you're getting quicker returns to the science community. <clears throat> you're helping people not spend their whole career on one science mission. You have younger people come in, work on a mission, do it quicker. And if it costs $100 million a year to maintain uh, a cadre of ground controllers watching this thing, think of the money that you're saving over time if you can eliminate five years of that mission, plus the risk of that hardware traveling through space. So this is a real enabler for Europa. In fact, SLS is the only vehicle that can bring it there in that kind of time. Unbelievable. Is it a bigger payload because it's, a, it's SLS, or is it well, just it gets it there faster? Th in this case, Atlas could fly the same mass of payload, which is very large, by the way, but it would take over seven years. I so, see. so it would have to take a whole bunch of gravity assists around the Earth and Venus to get it there where uh, SLS can send it there directly. Now, to your point is the New Horizons mission, which was the uh, mission to Pluto. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a 120-kilogram payload that was finally delivered there after like 10 years. In that case, SLS couldn't get you there any faster, but it could double the payload to over 250 kilograms of delivered payload to Pluto. So it just depends on the trajectory and the position of the planets when you do this on what value you have. But, but the fact you can do it quick is a unique attribute that only SLS can bring right now. <laughs> Unbelievable what this uh, rocket is capable of. And I kind of wanted to go back and kind of visit the rocket itself, where the history of it, where where did we start with some building some of these pieces, and kind of where are we now? So if we can just sort of start at the beginning, whenever SLS was proposed, and we're gonna we're gonna hammer in the first nail, I guess it's a little bit more complicated than that. But where where did uh, where did this all begin? Uh, yes, of course the. Um primary design was based off of the shuttle heritage. Mm -hmm. You know, we're taking components that the shuttle used, the propulsion aspects of it, um, the solid rocket motors, the external tank, and the 
space shuttle main engines and utilizing, upgrading, um, making more powerful uh, the, those components and assembling the core stage. Um, so that's kind of where the history of where SLS is coming from. Um, so we want to use that existing technology, again, upgrade it, make it better. Also, the uh, manufacturing facilities um, that go into making these components are in existence. So we want to still utilize that, save money, uh, save schedule to move forward with the SLS rocket. Okay, and uh, so it's kind of... I, I, that makes sense, right? Because it's you have okay. This is this is a core stage that works. These are components of the shuttle that works. Let's just sort of fit it in to meet these requirements of building a giant rocket that can take payloads anywhere in the solar system. Exactly. And humans too. It's a human rated, which is a huge component of this whole thing. Definitely. Um, so it's where is it being built? Is it is it one location? Uh, no, actually. It, uh Overall, there's going to be 44, over 44 states oh, wow. that uh, different components are going to be are being built in. So this is America's rocket. Yeah. Know? So it's not <laughs> just uh, NASA's. It's built, being built all over. You know, there's more than uh, a thousand contractors working on this. In addition, of course, into in addition to NASA. Mm -hmm. um, the core stage, which is the prime or contractor is Boeing, um, they're building that in Michoud, which is outside of New Orleans. The engine prime is Aerojet Rockendyne. Uh, they're being developed or manufactured um, or refurbished down at the Stennis Space Center. Um, and then when they're done, they'll be shipped to Massoud for integrate integration with the core stage. And then that core stage with the main engines would be sent back to Stennis for testing because um, Stennis is the primary testing facility for NASA I see. for rockets. Um, the boosters is the orbital ATK. Um, they're actually manufactured, manufactured just north of Salt Lake City in Utah and it's kind of ironic that the it's very close to the Golden Spike where the East and West Railroads met um, when they were building the trans Transcontinental Railroad uh, was very close to that because the motor segments are using the rail system to ship down to KSC from ATK orbital ATK out in Utah. Oh, okay, all right. So I like that. A little history there. <laughs> um, and the upper stage, of course, where uh, is Boeing ULA, um, which is a direct purchase from from them for that, and that's being built in Decatur, Alabama. Wow, all over the places is absolutely correct. So, and, and then again, those are just the primary elements. Um, all the subsystems to that are spread out all over the United States. So what, it, um, what is currently built and then what's on the ticket to be built? Well, right now the uh, core uh, has been built three times so far. <clears throat> the oh. weld confidence article to make sure this friction stir welding uh, is, is appropriate because it's the world's tallest, biggest weld fixture. Oh, down wow. in Michoud, so we had to test that first. Then they're building test articles, and then the flight hardware. The test articles right now are up at Marshall, so there's this new barge. Actually, it's the, the same barge they used for a shuttle Pegasus. They had to make it a lot longer, so they cut out the middle and put in a new middle section, and that just shipped up <clears throat> the core section up to Marshall where it's going under undergoing static testing. Um, the engine section's already been completed. Uh, the testing of that's been completed, and the intertank the sections between the hydrogen and oxygen tank has just arrived at Marshall Space Flight Center for testing. The, uh, the hydrogen and uh, oxygen tanks will arrive later this year for testing at Marshall too, all for static testing where they're put under load to simulate their, uh, their launch conditions. So this is the largest structural testing campaign since shuttle in the 1970s. And uh, you know, since this is probably a 50 year 
rocket. Um, this is really laying the foundation for that kind of generational spacecraft uh, capability that we're building for the moon and beyond. The upper stage, uh, the uh, exploration upper stage, the NASA one, is currently being worked on in design phase, but the ICPS that Paul talked about earlier, the, inter the uh, interim cryogenic propulsion stage is finished and down, already been tested and shipped down to KSC. Uh, the engines, the new engine controllers are hot fire tested at Stennis uh, already, and uh, I, we might even hear a sound of that in a minute. And the boosters, as we talked about, were built in Utah, but had full, two full-scale static firing tests at the Orbital ATK facility so far. Um, core stage and booster avionics testing are undergoing at Marshall right now in, specialized, uh, in a specialized integrated avionics test lab. So the testing's going forward. It's really quite a test campaign, uh, working on EM-1 right at the moment, but in parallel getting ready for, uh, I'm sorry, Block 1 to start with, and in, and in parallel working on Block 1B for the EM-2 mission maybe in 2022. So I, I, I want to understand the full scope. That's, that's, there's a lot of different elements, a lot of different parts of the testing. What are some of the main things that you really want to test? It sounds like structure is one of those things, and how, how do you do that? How do you test the structure? There's a, a new static test facility at uh, Marshall that's been developed where you essentially set them up vertically, and then you put a load down uh, on, on the stage, and you do it in many different uh, uh, angles to make sure you can understand not only is it going in straight in flight, but if it starts experiencing some kind of skew because of the engines. So it undergoes quite a bit of testing that way. That's obviously the, the structural modes are the most important. And when we talk about human spaceflight hardware, what that really means for structure is that you test it to a factor of 1.4. So it means there's a 40% margin on the capability of that structure, which is not something that expendable launch vehicles have to worry about. So. Our rockets are generally a little heavier, a little stiffer, a little more capable, but we do that to provide more margin for the crew in case of emergency. So that's, that's the biggest part of that structural test that's going on right now at Marshall. That goes back to your point, Paul, about uh, one of the main parts of testing this and building SLS is the fact that it is human rated and you have these extra constraints for making sure that safety is, and redundancy is one of the primary concerns of, of building this rocket exactly yes unbelievable so the other part is the um is the engines too you're you're actually firing the engines and it's a it's a hot fire test what's that well that's the the shuttle engines are going they're installed into a test stand at stennis they're put through the same paces as if they were being launched in the vehicle and remember some of these engines haven't been test fired in in eight years seven eight years right. so it's real important to make sure that they're still still have the quality that we were looking for at the same time, they have a new engine controller. So the controller, the computer that runs these engines have been upgraded from the shuttle days. So it's the first time those two have been mated together. So real important testing. We have, I think, uh, up to 15 of those engines in inventory. So they're gonna be going through those until they, uh, at uh, probably in the mid 20s, uh, replace them with a new build of the shuttle engine. So right now we're still going through the old engines with the new controllers installed. Actually, we do have some audio from that that I really want to play. It's uh, this is the hot fire test at Stennis. So if you're if you're listening right now, be prepared because it's going to be very loud.
that was the hot fire test. And what you're looking at what components? Are you looking at uh, temperature? Are you looking at propulsion efficiency? What what are, what are the main things that you really want to get out of this test? Well, I think the the biggest one is how's the turbo machinery going? You know, if you have tur turbine blades going at like 3,000 RPM and, and you're spitting out all that uh, fuel at the same time. How is that working out? Is it is it meeting all the parameters? Is like you said, there's a temperature. Uh, how how does it uh, how does it run through its life cycle for that eight minute burn? That's a long time to run an engine. Yeah. So especially you know before we launched uh, the shuttle only had three of these engines firing. Now we're going to have four of them. So again, that's a unique configuration. So making sure we understand how these engines will play together will be an important part of the test as well. Did you ever get to see any of these tests in person? Structural tests, uh, hot fire tests, anything like that? Yes. Is it really, really Well, the loud? Stennis test, you can get really close to it. Oh, really? Uh, because, you know, it has a flume that comes out the side, and you can get close to a cyclone fence. In fact, you can taste the exhaust because, you know, oxygen hydrogen comes together and forms water. Right. So that, and you have the, the sprinkler system that's cooling it down. So you get both the sound, right? You get the visual of the flames, and then you get the taste. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think you can do that anywhere else. You certainly can't get the taste at Kennedy. So Stennis is really a remarkable opportunity when they do those uh, those test fires there. Does it? I, I'm imagining like a hot shower or something, just like really. Well, remember Stennis is pretty humid because it's in Mississippi, so it's oh, always yeah. gonna feel like a hot shower. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm, I, that's a curious thing. How does a how does a hot fire te te test taste? Yeah, it has a, it has a taste to it. <laughs> Um, so what about the flight hardware for EM-1? Where are some of those components? Um, right now, the Orion stage adapter, that's where the 13 CubeSats are going to be housed during launch of, on EM-1. Oh, yeah. Um, it's currently at Marshall Space Flight Center, and at the end of, beginning, I'm sorry, of April, it's planned to ship down on the Super Guppy, which is a large carrier aircraft. Uh, down to KSC um, for processing. And once it's down there, when we're about six months to launch, that's when the secondary payloads will be integrated into that before stacked on the vehicle. Um, the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, of course, is finished. Um, it was, again, up here in Decatur and is already down at KSC doing other final preps on that. The launch vehicle stage adapter, um, which is being developed at at Marshall, the primary structure is complete, and they're doing spray foam insulation on the vehicle right now. Um, again, that's also to help with the acoustics aspects of the inside of that um, inside of the LVSA. Oh, that's right. Um, the core stage. Of course, the major components, um, as David said, the, the tank, the different tanks will be set up, sent up here for testing. Um, and once they, they're done testing, they'll be sent back down to Michoud and assembled. Um, and then the main engines will come over from Stennis and assembled into the, the full core. That's the um, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen um, inner tank and uh, the engines then it'll be sent back over to Stennis as um, David mentioned earlier each engine it would be separately tested but then all four of these will be tested as in one flight configuration um, down there at Stennis so we're running them through the the full cycle of uh, as we're integrating we're testing as we're putting it together that's so right we understand that as we assembled it is it still operating um, the way we expected it to so then will you Will it be built at Kennedy? Because that's where it's going to be assembled. launched? Or, assembled. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's built assembled. at Michoud, tested at Stennis, 
and then assemble the Kennedy. Kennedy. So the solid rocket motors, um, again, all the segments are cat the five segments, total of ten, two five on each side, have already been cast. Mm-hmm. They're um, in final prep for shipping down to KSC on the rail system. And then just at, similar to shuttle program, once they've reached KSC, they'll be stacked in the VAB. Um, one segment at a time, and then the core stage will come in and be connected into the center between them. Then you have your upper um, upper stage or the ICPS, or I'm sorry, you'll have your LVSA launch vehicle stage adapter. Then you'll have your Orion. Sp- Let me just start over. Once the core has been installed, then you'll have the launch vehicle stage adapter installed. Then you'll have your upper stage or the ICPS, um, and then on top of that, you'll have the uh, Orion stage adapter where the secondary payloads are and then Orion will come in and make complete the stack all in this it, all, in the vertical assembly yes building. yeah remember it was built to um, assemble the Saturn V rocket and yeah. we're about that same size so there's <laughs> plenty of room in there that's right it's a uh, going back to that actually I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast the vertical assembly building is as you can probably tell from the way that this is being assembled, it's gigantic. But it's so big, right, that it has its own weather system that you have to kind of worry about, right? Is that is that right? Yeah, it's yes. it's tall enough where you know everything that gets up in there can form its you know, it's it could rain a little bit sometimes yes. depending on the conditions. Form clouds up there. Yes. Very wow. And then the, you have these giant doors that's going to open, and then you'll just sort of roll the rocket out. Well, one, one big change is, if you recall, so it's really interesting, you know, a lot of that building was not changed from Saturn V. They only used two of the bays, there's four, for shuttles. So they took out the platforms that were for Saturn and put in some shuttle platforms. But for Saturn, uh, for, excuse me, for, for, block one, for Block 1B, they had to do a lot more changes to that. So they had to replace all the platforms for that. And... Uh, they actually <coughs> removed a whole bunch of Saturn V era equipment that had been left abandoned in place. So it's the, that building has really changed from what it was during the shuttle era. So it's it's really been reconstructed to fit the SLS. That's really yes. the main the thing that's going on right now in the VAB. Is right. it is it is it completed or is it still going on? The platforms are completed. Three M one block one. For for block one, okay. Right. Yeah, and you know, for SLS, there's still a lot of work at KSC being performed too. It's just not the launch vehicle and all of its hardware for EM1. It's KSC has to go through a, a redesign on a lot of their components, as David just said, the VAB and all the platforms to be able to reach the hardware when you're stacking SLS. Um, also, the crawler. Um, transporter uh, mm. that takes the mobile launch platform which has the uh, SLS rocket on um, originally the Saturn V rocket has to be upgraded to fit the SLS rocket mm-hmm. um, so in addition out at the launch pad they're um, redoing the flame trenches um, re-bricking them um, because you're gonna have a lot more powerful rockets since the S you know since the shuttle program. Uh, in addition, they're, they have to have a lot bigger water suspension system, you know, because a lot more power than what shuttle was going through. Called rainbirds after the sprinklers. Mm-hmm. Big rainbirds. Rainbirds. Yeah, they kind of go click, 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 click in the lawn, but this time they do it on the engine <laughs> instead. <laughs> so, you know, the water suspension suppression system is to help with not just the heat, but also the sound. Um, that these rockets, uh, engines, and solid rocket motors, when they ignite, they're very loud. They sh- send out a shock wave, and 
if you didn't have that water there to suppress or dilute that um, sound, that would just bounce back off the hard surface up into the vehicle and could damage the vehicle. So it's just not for flame, it's also to protect the vehicle from itself on the acoustics. Okay, that's the, su that's the suppression system. Right? Correct, the water that, every, that you usually see that starts a couple seconds right before ignition. Actually, I think we do have some audio of that. Uh, I don't think this one's quite as loud as a hot fire test, but let's, uh, let's listen to that. This is, the, this is what the suppression is going to sound like. And those are the, that's the clicks, right? That's the, I guess, it's it's basically just like a giant sprinkler system. Sprinkler system. system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Rocket-sized sprinkler system. Mm -hmm. So you're going to take it from the VAB, and, and I wanted to get circle back on that because I think I was calling it vertical. Is it vehicle assembly? Vehicle assembly. Vehicle, vehicle, uh, so I was getting that wrong. It's vehicle assembly, Billy. Yeah. You bring it out to the launch pad. And uh, is it going to launch on the same pad that the Saturn V was launching? Yes. Okay, so that's in, 39. In fact, I think, well, I'm not sure if it's A or B. A or B. But uh, the one that we that NASA kept, they've totally revamped the equipment underneath that concrete mound. Yeah. And it's uh, there's a lot of eclis and electrical equipment that's there, and um, the remnants <clears throat> from Saturn V. There's still a rubber room, if you know. That's where the if someone was trapped at the pad, you'd have a safe place in there. So that's still in that that same area, which they've now made a historic area, which is kind of interesting. But they, for the first time in 50 years, have cleaned out all the old equipment, totally revamped that launch pad for SLS. So. Um, it's brand new and ready to go. It's really impressive. So the um, what, what's being suppressed uh, over at this launch pad by, by the suppression system is it? It's the solid rocket boosters, right? And then are the engines firing at the same time? Yes, These RS twenty five engines, so, everything's all at once. Right. Um, actually, the um, sorry. Actually, the main engines uh, ignite first because we want to make sure all of those are operational and working at peak efficiency ah. because once you start the solid rocket motors you got to launch because you can't turn off solid rocket motors oh, yeah. so you want to make sure your other four engines are operating nominally and then you ignite your solid rocket motors so we've done some testing with the with these the main engines right the rs-25s yes also we have done um, full-scale testing of the solid rocket motors out there at orbital atk in utah where they actually um, constrain them, lay them on the ground sideways and constrain them and actually fire, do test fires out there at Utah. Ooh, I've seen that. They actually had a uh, HDR video, I think, of that high, high dynamic range or something. Yes. Yeah, and it, it was super cool to see, mm -hmm. but then also just the test itself. Actually, yeah, I've been the out there for a couple launches, and it's kind of unique because when shuttle launched, uh, you listen to the sound and it's you know launching so it's after just a few seconds it the sounds gone where solar arc motors it's operates for two minutes so you're sitting there feeling that whole sound you know <laughs> for two minutes um, and it's a really exciting experience to be out there how did it feel did it feel like you were at a lo loud concert or even worse worse than that well you're usually about uh, a mile or so away a mile, so okay. you know just for safety reasons That's and everything yeah. so you kind of get to see it off in the the distance a little bit but yeah you still feel it and hear it. it yeah and it's kind of unique because you see the smoke the engine's fire off and the smoke coming out and then a couple seconds later that's when you feel it Whew. so how about uh, the rs25s do you feel do you feel those too or not as much did on, were you out of the rs25 test yeah yeah well the, the static firing yeah you feel it in your 
you're, you can get closer to that and you feel it in your stomach. I mean, it's very visceral, the shaking of, your, uh, of, of that sound. So, yeah, you won't forget it once you've had it. That was the sound we played earlier, right? right? Okay. I think the one we still have is the, uh, is the solid rocket booster, I think. <laughs> okay, let's play, that. let's play that one. This is the one that uh, Paul's talking, the one out in Utah. Okay, so that was the that was the test from out in Utah, and if you really if you turned up the volume on your on your uh, on the podcast, you can really felt it. I listened to some of the, I would listen to this in the car or hook it up to a nice speaker because you can really feel it there. So those that's all of those the solid rocket boosters, the RS twenty five, and the suppression systems. So let's go back to the stages and sort of recap the I guess the stages of all of these engines firing. What what's that look like? Right. So you know the the term stage means that you have it a single entity that provi provides an impulse for a period of time and then is thrown away. Okay. So in the olden days, that would be Saturn, you know, you'd say Saturn was a three-stage vehicle, right? It had the, the first stage, the second stage, and then th the third stage was the injection stage that took, uh, you know, Apollo and the uh, LEM to the moon. Mm -hmm. For both shuttle and for SLS, we, we really don't, can't call it three stages because these stages work together. It's kind of like they're two and a half stages. Hmm. So what that means is the core, as, and as Paul said, the core starts a little bit earlier, but they're essentially the same time. The core and the boost, the rock, solid rocket motors, boosters, excuse me, um, turn on at the same time. So they're ignited and that's the one and a half stage. Okay. Because what happens after two minutes, the, the boosters fall off and the core continues. So that's that's the half stage in a sense, the boosters. Now the core continues. And then finally the core is expended after eight minutes. It's disposed of the ocean. And then you have the, the upper stage. In this case, the second, the second of the one and a, two and a half stages fires to get you to your destination. So you could still call it a three stage system, but because some of the stages work together, they're not really separate stages. So it gets a little confusing. So that's why you really don't hear, that's why people use the term upper stage these days and not third stage or second <laughs> stage. Um, because even, even the expendable vehicles have multiple solids on them and so they have the same issue. So that's, that's the difference in staging today. And it's more effective to do it this way as well. It's more effective, uh, I guess, is, is it from the perspective of, oh, you can, you can turn this off and you want to make sure everything's working? Is, is it, I guess, more reliable? That's why it's more effective? Well, it's more effective because you, you use the power where you need it. At, you know, at sea level, you need the most thrust. So uh -huh. you combine everything together to get you out of the, the gravity well of Earth. So um, there's an efficiency with that system that, that uh, you know, is, improved, is an improvement upon what was done for Saturn and other rockets before then. Okay. So how about the, uh, we're talking about different configurations too, block one, block one B, and uh, how, how they're going to be different and just sort of evolve. Um, Paul, I think you said you had some uh, secondary payloads, I think, on one B? Uh, 
Yes, that we're planning for. That we're planning for. Okay. okay. So, you know, currently on uh, commercial launch vehicles, um, CubeSats usually don't have uh, propulsion systems, and they're really going to um, low Earth orbit or geosynchronous orbit. Yeah. And they're pretty much dis, uh, deployed in those locations, so they don't need a secondary or propulsion system to get to where they need to. On EM-1, this is the first opportunity for a secondary payload to be able to have propulsion systems and get to get access to deep space. Because mm -hmm. we're giving them the initial um, thrust or velocity to get out going to the moon or into deep space. Um, they only need a smaller propulsion system to change their trajectory um, or where they want to go. Um, so it's, you know, this is the game changer for secondary payloads. I mean, this is first time opportunity for these small little shoe size shoe box size payloads to be able to get out into deep space yeah and do some great stuff orbiting the moon land on the moon you got some right. some great stuff happening with right. some of these secondary payloads as i mentioned in part one em1's kind of discovering that well they really want to be a little bit bigger so they can have a little bit larger propulsion system so instead of getting off at what we call bus stop one mm -hmm. um right in the middle of the van allen belts they'd like to get off at bus stop two or a little bit past so they don't have to worry about the radiation effects on their systems as much but they can't do it because they don't have the propulsion system big enough to change their um, direction that they want to go so on EM-2, um, because it's a, a more powerful rocket, um, there's opportunity for additional mass uh, allocations for secondary payloads. That mass allocation is the mass that's left over that the primary or co-manifested payload doesn't need the full capability of the rocket. So we can use that additional up mass for secondary payloads. Mm -hmm. So we're offering actually from a 6U up to a 12U and even a 27U size secondary payload. That's huge for <laughs> secondary payloads wanting to be able to get out into deep space. Um, this allows them to have more uh, power systems, more advanced um, telemetry, uh, communications, and especially larger propulsion systems so they can get out into different destinations and do all this great science that they want to do in these smaller, less expensive packages. Actually, that blends in nicely to drawing comparisons with SLS to other heavy lift rockets because SLS is, is going to be gigantic and take these very, very large payloads. What's the difference between SLS capabilities and some other heavy lift rockets like De Delta IV Heavy or, or Falcon Heavy? Um, why wouldn't you use just the heavy rockets and why do you need SLS? Existing commercial rockets, um, they're not nest destinations going into deep space. They're mainly going into low Earth orbit or um, geosynchronous orbit. Hmm. So for a secondary payload to get out into deep space, they'd have to be pretty big, oh, you know, yeah. to have a propulsion system larger than a 27U. So the uniqueness of flying on SLS, if you want to get out into deep space, is that you don't have to have a huge uh, satellite or, and propulsion system. SLS is providing that initial kick or velocity to get you out in the general direction you want to go, and then you'd have a smaller propulsion system to be able to get out there. So overall, it's a lot less expensive. Um, and again, SLS is giving these small CubeSats the opportunity to get onto deep space. And uh, also the fact that it's human-rated, right? The fact that you can actually put people on it and bring them far into space, right? Right. Kind of a big, kind oh, of a definitely. Big thing. Yes. Is it the only one that's rated for human for deep space? Well, it's the only launch vehicle today that's that's being designed specifically for that. There's. I see. You you could make the argument that uh, 
a Boeing CST-100 capsule flying on a Falcon, excuse me, on a uh, Atlas is a human-rated system. It's it's not really. It's an amalgam. And, and by the way, that's aimed at Leo. So I they, see. they, you know, it, yes, we are the only ones that are being de- designing specifically for that, and it's for safety reasons. Mm. So it has to really meet these standards. It has to be redundant. It has to, and and the SLS is the big deep space rocket that has the standards, has the capabilities, um, and is going to get you farther. Right. Ultimately. Exactly. And, you know, to be that uh, safe vehicle for uh, launching humans into space, deep space, you know, we have to have these built-in redundant systems. Um, We have to do all these uh, testing um, throughout the whole build of the system. you know, of course, that's a little penalty that we have to have additional mass to be able to um, have this redundancy, have this extra um, safety aspects of this vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, of course, goes right in against uh, being able to have a larger mass up mass capability. Mm-hmm. But we're doing this for human exploration, not robotics exploration. So we're, we, we have to take those extra steps to make it safe. That's right. So what's the benefit of, of having this large up mass versus just launching a bunch of rockets with smaller masses? Right. With what's um, often not uh, fully appreciated is for human spaceflight, for, for long duration, uh, you can put together a whole bunch of little modules for humans. But think about it like this. Every time you put together a module, it has to have a hatch. Maybe it has to have two. It has to have a life support system. It has to have a power system, a thermal system. It has to be able to operate autonomously until another small module is joined to it. So you can make um, a lunar orbiting platform or a Mars deep space transport out of many small modules brought up over time from, by many vehicles. But the problem is it becomes uh, suboptimized. You end up paying maybe 50% more mass for all the structure you don't really have to have. Plus now you have many, many duplicative subsystems for many modules that have to all function flawlessly together and have to wait in space while other modules come up over time and to be joined together. So when you think about this coming up with this giant origami type space station that's deployed over years from many small modules compared to one flight or maybe two flights bringing up a very large module that does everything in one one reliable tested on the ground type of uh, human habitation system, it, it becomes almost a no-brainer, right? <laughs> if, if you want to make sure your people are alive over time, you really want that kind of system. Only SLS right now is sized to do that. Other guys can certainly deliver those pieces, uh, but they'd be a lot smaller and you'd have these issues that we just talked about. That's right. And I guess it kind of opens up some opportunities for just because you can have a larger up mass, because you have more space uh, within the fairing to, to put things, right. now you have a lot less constraints because even um even uh, I, i'm gonna go back to james webb right james webb is a, is a wonderful telescope but it was constrained by what it can the wait. volume of the fairing yeah so it had to come up with this folding technique to pretty much fit inside the fairing otherwise you couldn't launch the you couldn't launch the satellite but i guess you can design you have a little bit more freedom of design with something a little bit larger right well, or if you wanted to scale up the james webb design let's say that was the perfect design for yeah. telescopes uh, you could make a telescope that's five times larger with the large fairing that you know larger fairings that sls could fly so it opens up a hole either you can have a, a non origami type folding out type telescope and it's all great or if you want to still do that, it gets you something even larger. So the scale is, uh, the current fairing uh, is 
in some cases, the 10 meter fairing would be five times larger than the largest existing fairing today. Whoa. If we could produce that. And that's, you know, you're talking um, a seven story building could fit inside that 10, <laughs> you know, that long, the long 10 meter diameter, meter uh, diameter fairing. All right. Just launch my house into space there you and go. just kind of get a, get a nice well, view. Well, it'd, it'd be your condo building that <laughs> it would launch into your house. Even bigger. Yes. So I kind of wanted to end with just sort of the scope of we're kind of setting up the scene for what this what this rocket is capable of looking towards the future. And and, and uh, David, you kind of pointed towards this was um, this is a 50 year rocket, right? This is something that we're planning on using for for a long time for many missions. How do you see this rocket being used? Like, take us take us into the future. What is this rocket going to give us? So. Uh you know, obviously the lunar orbiting platform would be the first step. Let's yeah. prove the technologies in our backyard called the moon. We use those technologies then to extrapolate a system that can go to Mars safely and start, you know, bringing Mars into this human human ring of habitation in our solar system. Um, some of the more exciting things in tandem are these robotic missions. There's the idea that we can send, because we can go so fast, uh, we so fast into the deeper reaches of the solar system that within a five-year mission, we can send out a telescope that could go 200 astronomical units out from the, the sun and actually come back and aim at the sun and use the sun as a gravitational lens to see exoplanets on the other side of the sun. So we can make the world's largest telescope by having one lens on one side of the sun and using the sun's gravity as the other lens and now seeing planets like we could have never seen them before, all because SLS can send that, that, that telescope out in a time frame that we can actually operate a mission versus, you know, remember Voyager took 30 years to get outside to close to the heliosphere. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's such a game changer that the real issue with SLS is we haven't thought about all the stuff we can do with it yet. You know, it, <laughs> it, it kind of bends our imagination in a new way that uh, we haven't been thinking of. Uh, another example is um, uh, inter interstellar probe, again, sending something beyond the heliosphere now. You know, instead of Voyager drifting out there over 30 to 40 years, we can send something out there in 20 years to break the barrier and see what's on the other side of the heliosphere. And we can do that in an active manner versus we're just getting little pulses from Voyager now still coming back. We can be much more active in that. So uh, a lot of places like JPL are investigating the capability of SLS uh, in ways that we never even thought of recently. So um, we're just on the, uh, the very edge of discovering what we can do with the system. Unbelievable. And this is kind of opens up the the plan for ex exploring beyond low Earth orbit, right? You said the first step for human exploration is is going towards the moon, but now you have a bunch of moon missions. You kind of develop your skills. You got this lunar orbital platform, the gateway that's going to bring us the truck stop, <laughs> that we right. call it. It's going to take us further out. And I'm guessing this will be used for future human missions too beyond beyond this well, if first we go step. to the we talked about i think in the earlier episode nuclear thermal propulsion if yeah. we're able to employ that for human transport we can reduce the times to where we can send people maybe even ultimately beyond mars so but but only sls with its capability to loft both mass and volume when the nuclear the nuclear thermal propulsion requires large amounts of hydrogen which requires volume only the SLS can give us that capability to even see if some of these technologies are usable versus just relying on the same old technologies as the last 50 years. So we have, we have so much promise in front of us with this. 
Unbelievable. You guys are getting me all excited for, for what's to come. I just want to take a time machine and jump, you know, 20 years into the future and just see what this rocket has done. Yep, you're not the only one. Yeah, take us, <laughs> take us with you. Yes. Yeah, we want to be there, too. Unbelievable. Hey, um, David and Paul, thank you so much for coming on and kind of describing the SLS and really spending so much time so we can do this in two episodes because there's so much to this story. And honestly, this was the first time that I've actually gone into this much detail for the rocket. So I really appreciate you getting on. And for the listeners, please listen to parts one and two and get the whole story of what this rocket is all about. Guys, thanks again for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Houston, we have a podcast. (laughs) Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode two. Can you hear me now? I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we're bringing in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, pretty much all the folks that have the coolest information and stuff you really want to know, right on the show, and tell you more about everything else. We're talking everything from extraterrestrial dirt to unknown parts of so today we're talking space communication networks. Hey, thanks for sticking around uh, and Foster. listening to the whole He's full story of the Space Houston, Launch System. Great discussion uh, this was about episode 42, part 2. If you haven't listened like to part 1, go so, back. So, uh, you so can listen to, uh, to some of the so more no components about EM1 and then just and jump some right general uh, ideas about what SLS was. Otherwise, you can go to some social media channels and website. We'll start with the website, www.nasa.gov slash SLS. That's where you can get the latest and greatest. Otherwise, you can follow uh, some social media accounts. On Twitter, it's at NASA underscore SLS. On Facebook, it's NASA SLS. Or uh, you can actually go on the web and search SLS Mission Planner's Guide. Hey, thanks for and it's a document around. on the web so that you can download and just learn everything about the rocket, uh, some of the constraints. And that was actually one of the things that uh, Mr. David Smith Great place to go uh, worked for on. More information for so we're really looking forward to the launch of the first SLS. Glad you were able to join us on so today's podcast to listen uh, about the rocket and some of the missions and capabilities of the Space Launch System. If you have any questions, just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform for the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you can submit a question or an idea for an episode that you want us to cover here on the podcast. Just make sure to mention uh, to it's for this podcast. Houston, we have a podcast. So this episode was recorded on March 20th, 2018, thanks to Alex Perryman, Rachel Kraft, Laura Rashawn, Kelly Humphreys, Pat Ryan, Tyler Martin, Bev Perry, and all the folks at the Marshall Space Flight Center for helping to put this together. Thanks again to Dr. Paul Bookout and Mr. David Smith for coming on the show. We'll be back next week. It's 